Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. Hasn't it been great to be able to worship together and to especially to experience baptism? That's one of my favorite things. Yeah, so appreciate all that are here. I especially appreciate those. Maybe you're watching online. You're, you're not here with us, but you're with us. And so appreciate those watching at home or some of you will be watching this this week or maybe you're listening to it uh, as you work out or in the car. Regardless of how, we're so thankful to have you connected and have you as a part. And I'm thankful, especially in light of this current series and this current chapter. I've told you for a couple of weeks now, Romans chapter eight, one of my favorites in the Bible, because in it, Paul is talking about how we live out this faith, especially in the reality of life, the reality of our struggles with sin, reality of our struggles with ourselves. And this week in particular, we're gonna look at a section of Romans eight, where he talks about the reality of what do we do as Christians in face of the reality of suffering, the reality of, of real evil events that happen in the world and things that happen to us. And, and if we're honest, this is one of the things, not just as Christians, everybody on the planet struggles with. What do you do with evil? How, how do you make sense of it? You know, I was reading an article in Psychology Today, it's a fascinating article, a, a doctor, Dr. Ralph Lewis, and, and he describes how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to try to tell life through a story. Listen to how he describes that. He, he says, our brains have a natural proclivity for coherent stories, grand narratives with an overarching point and a satisfying end. Things must have a specific reason. They must have a point. Our brains are not satisfied with randomness. And, and so because of that, because we're wired to think of this story, when we have events and when we look at things, and especially when you look at tragedies and you, you look at evil and you look at the events that we've seen in our world even recently or events you've experienced in our life, our brains automatically want to go to a place of, why did this happen? How does this fit the story? Now, it, it's fascinating for Lewis because he doesn't believe in God. He ends his article saying, the universe actually doesn't have any meaning or story, but as humans, we provide meaning for it. Which, it was a fascinating article with a really flat answer. But I'm like, seriously, there's no meaning in the world whatsoever, but somehow I'm supposed to make that meaning? That doesn't match. Now, they would reverse it, and maybe you are, you'd go, yeah, but how do you work with a God that you say is all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful, and yet these events happen. And different people and expressions of faith have wrestled with this. It's a, in theology, we call this theodicy. How do you wrestle with suffering and evil? Now, about 50 years ago, there was a book, bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written by Rabbi Kushner. It's a good book as he's wrestling with it, except he, he finally comes to the answer that he believes in God, but he kind of waffles on the point of omnipotence. He says he, he's God, but he's not an all-powerful God. In fact, it, his final point is we've out-evolved a God who could control us. And, and so in writing off God's omnipotence, that's kind of how he makes his answer. Not real satisfying to me either. Certainly not what I see scripture saying about God. And, and we live in the mystery of it. I, I'll just go ahead and confess right out of the gate. There's a mystery of 
Because I do believe he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's all-good. And so how do I wrestle in the mystery that he's created a world and it's somewhere in the mystery of the fact that he chose to create a world with creatures that he wanted to love and wanted to be loved by. And in creating these kind of creatures, he gave them a freedom that in order to love, they also had the freedom to rebel. And we chose that rebellion. And and we can recognize it brought it in the world, but even now as a Christian, Maybe you wrestle with the fact, but if he's good and all-powerful, then why are we experiencing the suffering we do? And, and if we get really individual, it's when we go through it, why am I experiencing it? How do I wrestle with this? And, and I love this section of Romans. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. If you're using one in the room, the blue Bibles, page 1,121, 22, right in there. If you've got it on your phone, pull it up, because we, we're going to read through it together in Romans chapter 8. As Paul's just going to dive headlong in, as he's talking about this life of sanctification, it's a life that includes suffering. In fact, look, look what he says in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's talking about the glory of eternity when, when we finally are with him. But he goes, hey, let's talk about this present time though. And, and notice out of the gate, He just assumes they're suffering. And in fact, the first point I would just say is, expect that bad things happen to good people, even good Christians. Paul says the sufferings of this time. He he doesn't put a qualifier on it. He doesn't say the sufferings, you know, for those few people who suffer. He's just writing us as Christians and he goes, hey, let's go ahead and talk about suffering because you're gonna suffer. And and I think it's important that we embrace the right expectations because whether we mean to or not, I think all of us as Christians, we can kind of approach it where we tell ourselves, if I'm not doing, you know, major sin, if I'm not doing something egregious, if I'm staying out of the ditch, I'm pretty faithful in it. I have this kind of expectation, a range of suffering that I might experience in life. And then when the suffering gets outside that range, When I experience things, and and not only that, I experience one thing and it's followed by another thing. And another. That that at some point you kind of look at it and you go, God, this wasn't the agreement. It certainly wasn't the expectation. Now, as I say this, let me make sure that you're clear because you might hear this, especially when somebody's talking about suffering and if you've been through a lot of suffering or you're in it right now, it's almost easy to get jaded because you you listen to them talk about it and you go, yeah, but they they haven't experienced what I have. And we kind of have our suffering scorecard. And I know in in my life, I mean, I I can add up, there's been key events of suffering as I look back, you know, when lost my dad tragically in a car wreck when I was six years old. And growing up years without them. Watched parents both struggle with mental illness. Saw them divorce. Buried a brother at 42. Saw two young nieces die at six and seven from a horrific disease. And other events, I mean, I can start looking at these events of life in it. And, and one of the things I love the author of this passage, Paul doesn't write this as some theologian who's up in a room somewhere alone and he goes, hmm, I'm musing about suffering. What should I teach them about suffering? He writes it as a person who's experienced every kind of suffering, who knows what it's like physically to be beaten. He knows the suffering of injustice to have people say stuff about your reputation, to go to jail for. 
He knows what it's like to have friends that you were so close to betray you and walk out on you. To experience event after event after event. He knows what it's like to see something in his life that in his estimation, God should just remove this. He had some thorn in the flesh, some form of suffering, and he goes to God and he goes, hey God, it would be great if you would just remove this. I mean, my ministry would be better, my life would be better. Will you take this away? And God says, no. And he asks him again, and God says, no. And he asks him again, and God says, no. There's a certain form of suffering when, when something just seems so clear to you And God won't do it. So when Paul writes this and he talks about suffering in life, if you're somebody that you're you're in it right now, hear me, he can relate. He doesn't just say this as a concept. He says it as a reality in his life. And and, and for us, here's what, I don't even know what a good Christian is for all Christians. He just assumes there's gonna be suffering in life. And as he says that, notice the second thing with it as well. Don't assume that someone's suffering is the result of personal sin. Don't assume it's based on sin. Now, there is suffering that we can trace to back to our sin. We make foolish choices. We make sinful choices. We do things in life. And God convicts us of them and reuses our circumstances to get a hold of our attention and go, you got to deal with that. There is a form of that in life. That's not what Paul's writing about here, though. And, and, and we have to be careful because somebody may go through something and even Jesus' disciples, when they saw a blind man, they said, why is he blind? Was, did he sin or did his parents sin? Somebody's to blame for this. And, and we recognize there's a form of suffering that you can go through because you're, not because you're doing the wrong thing, because you're doing the right things. Me, look at Job. Remember the story of Job? Job's a righteous man. And Satan goes into God and he says, well, you know why Job loves you? Because you gave him everything you wanted. He's got a great marriage, great family. He's really wealthy. He has everything. You bought him off, God. That's the only reason Job loves you. If you let me attack him, he wouldn't love you anymore. And God lets him. And Job loses his business. He loses generational wealth. He loses his children. He loses his health. His wife becomes bitter. I mean, you just go through the checklist. Is it because he did something wrong? No, it's because he was doing something right. I mean, the greatest example of this is Jesus. Look how Peter puts it. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Do the right thing, no matter what. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example. You must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. See, he says Jesus suffered not based on his sin. And the reason I just want to make this point at the beginning, some of you, and here's where I hate the evil one, I hate Satan, you live under and you're living in a season of suffering right now. And then the devil just hits you all the time. This must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. There must be some hidden sin. Or or you trace back to some earlier time in life. God's punishing me because of what I did then. Because that's not how God works. Now he may have you in this season of suffering. Don't add 
Satan's shame on top of that. If it truly is connected to your sin, you never have to wonder about it. God is really clear about conviction. Read through the Bible. When people need to be convicted, God tells them. So you don't have to sit there and go, I wonder what this is about. But for many people, and I would say for most believers, you hit suffering in life, not because there's some hidden sin, but you're going through events and you're living in a world that has suffering. That's Paul's next point in this. Look what he says in it, and I put it this way. We embrace the fact that our current situation is grown-worthy. Grown-worthy. We live in a grown-worthy world. Now, why do I say that? Look at the next passage. He's going to talk about three series of groans. Look at it. Look at the first series of groans. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He, when he talks about the created, he's talking about our universe, our created world, everything that you see out there. He says our created world itself groans like it's in childbirth. For those of you that have had children, the pain of childbirth, is there anything more painful? And that you go through that, and, and Paul describes it in this way, he says, we live in a world and the very physical universe itself has been impacted by sin. It's impacted by the futility of sin. It's impacted by the devastation of that, even down to the creation itself that the creation longs to be restored, that promise when he says the glory to come is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. The restoration of the animal kingdom in the way it should be. The restoration in our universe the way it should be. And as believers, we're called during this season to steward the planet, even while we see the impact and the devastation of it. When we live in a world that you see the impact of tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes, when you see the impact of what's happening with the planet in so many ways, where I feel it so deeply when you see the impact on the animal kingdom of species that are extinct, that phrase, the groaning, the creation groans. About a year ago, I was watching a documentary and it was talking about different species that were going extinct. And there was a section of it that I couldn't help but think about this passage of, of creation groaning. In fact, there, there's one part of it, there's a professor at Cornell University, and at Cornell they have this repository, this huge library of recorded sounds of animals. That they, they wanna keep a record of every animal sound they could, especially those animals that have gone extinct. So we have some record of what they sounded like. And in one section of it, he, he pointed out a recording of a bird in Hawaii, the O'o bird. I want you to watch just this section out of that documentary. The whole world is singing. Clicking and grinding and whistling and thumping. But we've stopped listening. The 
Cornell Bioacoustical Laboratory has the largest repository of animal sounds on the planet. They've been collecting them since the 1930s. So there's this range of sounds from the largest animal ever to live on this planet to the tiniest little insects. This is a song recording of a male oo singing on Kauai. These birds mate for life, so he would be singing a duet with his mate where he sings and she sings back and forth. Here comes the male song. There's no response. Here's the male song again. That's the last male of a species singing for a female who will never come. He is totally alone. And now his voice is gone. You feel the sadness of that? Like the, the last male crying out. I mean, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, I feel, I feel this sense of what Paul's saying. The creation groans. It, it, it groans. Here's what he's saying. It, it groans because the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way it ultimately will be one day when it's restored. And that's one of the things I look forward to the most in the new heavens and earth. The restoration of animals we've never even seen. And the experience of that. But Paul says, we groan and the world groans because we live in this world. And then he makes it personal. We groan because we recognize our limitations in this world. Look at the next verse. He said the creation groans in verse 22. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We who are Christians, we groan inwardly as we eager, wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan in this struggle with sin. We groan even with our physical bodies. There's this part of us. We groan because we long for what we will be, but we live in what we are. And, and the older you get, I'll just go ahead and tell you at 55, the body groans even more. And you, you have these reminders of your mortality and limitations. Sometimes these rude awakenings in it. I, I had this uh, several months ago. I had a rude awakening, oh, awakening to the ego, if nothing else. Uh, it was after a Sunday service and uh, I was headed home and I stopped at Walgreens. There's a Walgreens by my house and, and there's this Young man that works there, he's very interesting. He, he always makes interesting comments. I don't know what quite to make of him. And I was checking out this day and, and he's there and he said, oh, wow, you're dressed up. And I'd just come from church and I had a sweater on and, and everything. He says, what, what's the occasion? I said, well, I, you know, work at a church. I just came from church. And, and he goes, yeah, but you look like somebody. You look like somebody famous. Now, when he went there, I immediately started thinking through the list of people I'd love to be compared to. And then he goes, oh, I know who it is. You look like Bernie Sanders. I, and I said to him, I was like, who? Hopi. 
thing. There was some other Bernie Sanders I didn't know about. He goes, you look like Senator Bernie Sanders. I said, are you kidding me? Look, I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your politics are. There's nobody out there wishing they look like Bernie Sanders. So I go home and, you know, I'm changing. Lee comes in. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm about to burn this outfit. She's like, what? And I told her about it. And being the loving, empathetic woman that she is, she laughed hysterically. I told my children and they kind of, you know, thought it wasn't much of a stretch. Literally one of them said, yeah, I can see it. Like you can see it. And then, you know, I told this story first service, between services, Shep, our worship pastor, you might not realize he loves Photoshop. Yeah, so he, uh, yeah. Yeah. And fortunately now you're all sitting there going, oh, I can see it too, yeah. Now why does that offend me? I got to get it off. Y'all won't pay attention anymore if I don't. Hey, why does it offend me? Because it's just a reminder. I'm getting old. There's an end. And, and the reality is, I think we groan not just because of what's happened physically. In so many ways, I'm not who I want to be. And I thought I'd be there by now. And I experienced that. There's one more level of groaning. Look at verse 26. This is a fascinating part to me. The creation groans, we groan. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Look, look what Paul is saying here. He says the Spirit groans because he knows us deeply and then he prays appropriately. That, that in the groaning of a created world that's not the way it's supposed to be, even in a created body that's not the way it's supposed to be, the Holy Spirit has chosen for those of us who are believers that he knows us so deeply and he knows our hearts so well that he goes to those places that we can't even express. He, he knows those weaknesses that I don't even like to admit to myself or those heartaches that hurt so bad we just can't go there or those desires or fears that we're scared to let anybody else know. And our God has chosen, God the Holy Spirit, that in, in this world of suffering, he says, I want to know you so intimately. And he takes all of those fears and all of those desires and all of those weaknesses and all those things I can't even express. And what it says is he's able to translate them and pray them appropriately, pray them according to God's will. Guys, I don't often pray according to God's will. I pray according to Tim's will. But my God even knows that weakness about me. And in his grace, 
He takes the deepest parts of me and expresses them appropriately in prayer for me. I love the beauty of that. I love how Sinclair Ferguson, he's a pastor and a theologian, he talks about when he was a boy, in Northern Scotland, they'd go visit his mother's family and his mother had a cousin who at the age of 21, he got married and right after his wedding, he got a disease that paralyzed him. All he could do is they could hand him a cup of tea and he, he could bring the tea to his lips and drink it, but that's all he could do. He couldn't speak anymore. And as a boy, Ferguson was scared of him a little bit because he, he would have these groans and, and, and just groaning and, and kind of guttural sounds is all he could make. But the more he was around him, he realized he was actually communicating. He just didn't understand. The most beautiful part of the story, that young bride who married at the age of 21 stayed with him the rest of his life. And Ferguson said every time he would make these expressions, he'd make these groans that he didn't understand, she would show up, she'd come beside him, and she understood. She knew exactly what he needed and what he wanted. I love how Ferguson compares it to us. He writes in this, he says, that's how we are sometimes, we're paralyzed. We don't know how to pray. And in this world, sometimes to this world, we seem insignificant and unimportant to be passed by and to be despised. But the Spirit helps us. He helps us in our weakness. Guys, Paul is writing here and he goes, we live in a world where there is suffering. It's a groan-worthy world. But our God groans with us. He doesn't hold our weakness against us. He's actually able to advocate for us because he loves us that much. And then in verse 28, one of the most famous verses of the Bible, look what he says. And we know that in light of that, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he keeps going, and you need to connect this part, and there's some words in it, predestination, foreknew. We'll discuss all those in a future sermon. I know we get locked up on those. I just want you to hear it in the context of suffering. He says, we know God is doing this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that it, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul's putting it, remember, in the big picture chain of what God's doing. And he says, in this chain, we can hold on to this truth that God is working it for our good. As you look at these verses in that, the first thing I'd say is, your suffering is never good, but know that God is using it for your good. Your suffering is not good. Romans 8, 28 does not say suffering is good. And yet that's often how people will treat it to someone who's going through suffering. So somehow I think we feel like Job's friends, we have to defend God. And somebody's gone through a tragic event and we, we want to show up and, and try to tell them how this is really good. Look at the verse again. We know that for those who love God, for those who are Christians, all things work together for good. See, God is able to work it for good. He doesn't say the event itself is good. And, and, and so you, you need to realize God never looks at your suffering and goes, well, it's really good. Guys, death is never good. It may be a relief to someone who's suffering, 
but it's an enemy of God. And it was never the way it was supposed to be. The pain of the divorce is not good. The heartbreak of disease, God doesn't look at it and say, it's good. Abuse is never good. And God never asks you to look at it and go, oh, it was really good. Scripture doesn't say that. God doesn't say that. God looks at those things, and, and when you talk about the wrath of God, all that is wrong, that's what stirs it. And he's a just God in that. And so he's not asking you to look at these events and go, well, they're, they're, they're really good. No, he's able to work it for your good. It's a big difference. Now, as he does that, I would say as well, don't assume that you'll always see the good or that it will balance out the bad. That's the other thing is, you, we always tell ourselves, well, there's a silver lining. You may not see the silver lining this side of eternity. That's why God, that's why Paul is backing this thing up to an eternal perspective. Because some suffering you look at this life, you, you might not be able to look at it and go, well, okay, I see how God used it for good. You may not even understand in that. Or here, here's the other thing I think we often do as Christians. A, a horrific event or tragedy happens or suffering happens and God brings good out of it. And there's almost this estimation of, okay, I've got to add up enough good to overcome what was bad. And so you look at how God works in this. Take a, a young person dies in a car accident and God in his goodness is able to bring his friends. Many of his friends come to Christ through that. I've seen these events happen. And that's awesome that God was able to work it for good. But for the parents who lost that child, it'll always be bad. There's not this balancing out in it. I saw that with my nieces. And my wife's family, her brother, they, they lost two little girls, six and seven. Horrific disease, batting disease. Horrific way to die. Horrific way to lose a child. And I've watched as God has brought so much good out of it. As they've been, been advocates and champions, they, they followed him in their faith, even in that journey. In their hometown of Memphis, there's a grief counseling center named Mila's House, named after one of the girls. They raise money every year for it. Many people that are able to go to Mila's House for grief counseling. So much good. But, but there'll never be this point that you can add up all that good that'll ever overcome the loss for that mom and dad. And God doesn't work that way. Guys, we're, we're not some karmic scale here. And, and Paul's not calling you to that. He says, you, you trust God. He can take any event and he will redeem it for our good. But we don't always see it. And even when we say that, I'd say as well, even when you know God is using suffering for your good, you don't have to like it. That's the other thing with Christians. Sometimes it's like we're in suffering and we think we're supposed to put on this happy face or, oh, God's using it. It's, it's good. I always look to Jesus in this. Looking to Jesus, writer of Hebrews says to do this, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So in other words, you only have faith because of Jesus and your faith is going to become more perfect because of Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Look at this line despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer here is talking about the worst form of suffering anyone's ever experienced, Jesus on the cross. 
No one has experienced that. And, and I love that line. There's a part of it that he endured. And there was part of it he hated. He despised it. That, that moment when the sin of humanity is placed on him, that moment on when he who knew no sin was made sin in order that we could be righteous. And Jesus modeled for us the very thing that Paul's talking about here. For the joy set before him, for what he knew was coming, he could look at that for the joy there. But while he was in it, there's a part where he goes, I hate this. And he didn't just sit there and go, it's really okay. What did he do in that moment? He cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what it, it feels like. That's what I'm experiencing in this. When the shame of humanity is placed on it. I, I just say it to you that you have permission in the suffering to be as honest with God as Jesus was. To cry out to him. To, to share with him. And there's nothing in scripture that you're supposed to go, oh, I like this. Because there were parts he despised, but for the joy set before him, he endured. As I say that as well, trust that God's plan for you will never fail, no matter what. Trust God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't lost you. God's plan didn't get sideways with you, that it worked with everyone else and somehow it didn't work with you. That's why Paul does that chain, that chain in verse 29 through 30. That's why he starts all the way from eternity past. And he said, those whom God foreknew, those whom God knew before the world was even created. And if you're his child, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about you. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. They were saved in Christ. And everyone who is justified, guess what happens? They get glorified. They get to experience the world as it should be. They get to experience themselves as they should be. They get to experience the presence of God as it should be. And Paul's just making this promise. He doesn't lose a one of them. He didn't lose you. And so God's plan is still working even with you. It may not look that way. I don't know if you've ever seen a tapestry. You know, a tapestry, these, those big woven portraits, sometimes they're knit, sometimes needlepoint, sometimes different tapestries that are brought together and beautiful pieces of art that are made with thread. And if you look at them, you see this beautiful picture. Have you ever turned one over? What is beautiful on one side, you turn it over, it has a lot of knots. It has a lot of frayed threads. Parts of it look very confusing. Because it just seems to run together and tie off. And if all you saw it from that side, you'd go, this is a mess. But then you flip it over and you go, oh. Oh, that's what was going on. See, that's Paul's promise to us and promise to you. God is weaving this tapestry that even the events of suffering, even the bad things, even the parts you're experiencing it, there'll come a day when you step back in eternity and it flips over and you go, oh, okay, that's what he was doing. And even though it's horrific here, he somehow is able to make it beautiful in Jesus. And I trust him with that.
And as I do that, I, I just tell you where you are right now, don't evaluate the whole story based on your current chapter. There's a psychologist that said our, our brains are wired to think of life as a story, to think of all of life as a story. And when it doesn't add up in the events, we don't know what to do with the story. And, and one of the reasons Paul backs way up here is he wants to make sure that we always frame it in light of the big story, not the chapter that we're in. And even the chapter of your life or the chapter of this season, it's so easy to evaluate everything according to this chapter and we go, and I don't really like this story. You know, I, I've always loved, since I was a young man, I love the books, The Lord of the Rings. And then the movies and all with it. I mean, this grand epic story in a, a different world. And as you read through it, two of the characters in the book, Frodo and Sam, these two little hobbits, they're absolutely instrumental to the story. And if you read, there's parts of it, and it's long parts of it, when they're wading through the evil land of Mordor, when they have this impossible task to destroy a ring of power, when they experience day after day of, of frustration, of hunger, of fear. If I were to take the whole epic of the Lord of the Rings and just give you one chapter where Frodo and Sam or there in the wilderness together, and that was the only chapter you had to evaluate, I promise you, you'd read the, the one chapter and you'd go, well, this is a depressing little story. These poor little characters. You wouldn't know from that chapter they're actually heroes to the story. You wouldn't know from their cha that chapter they're actually a part of a greater epic that can only be told in the whole. And, and what part of what Paul is telling each one of us, he's saying, don't evaluate your story just based on this chapter. Don't evaluate the storyteller based on your chapter. You, you have to step back and look at the whole and trust what he's doing in that. As you do that, I would just say, trust that no matter how bad it gets here, it will be that much better there. This is what gives meaning to the whole thing. It's what Paul led with in verse 18. Look how he says it again. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love how he frames that. He says, yes, we suffer here. We live in a groan-worthy world here. We live in events here that we don't understand what God's doing. But everything you face here, no matter how bad it gets here, it's going to be that much better there. You allow this to be the reminder of how great it will be. Now that takes faith, especially if you're in it. You know, as I, I think about that comparison of how low it goes and how high it goes. I've always been fascinated with, with caving and people that are cavers, especially extreme cavers. And there's teams of people, whether you realize it on the planet, Bill Stone is one of these guys who leads teams that they're discovering the deepest cave systems out there. And here's their goal. They want to go deeper in the earth than Everest is high. Isn't that crazy? And so they, they, they explore these cave systems. And uh, there, there's one book about Bill Stone and his team when they were exploring the, the Cheve cave system down in Mexico that goes miles and miles and miles. 
And, and to be these cavers, you have to make a commitment. You're going in not just for a day. You go in for weeks and you don't get to come out. And they camp out on the sides of mountains that are going steep sides. And they're wet most of the time. Different places, they come to lakes, underground lakes. And they have these things called rebreathers because you can't take tanks down there. It's too far. And so these rebreathers give you four hours underwater. And then they have to replace the filters on them. And so you come to a lake and you take off underwater, hoping you can find an opening that's deeper that'll come out on the other side. Sometimes they're squeezing themselves through it with sensory deprivation. Now, I find it fascinating. Some of you are going, this is horrifying. <laughs> See, they got this commitment. They want to go deep, deeper than we've ever gone high. Paul flips it around. He says, no matter how deep you go, <laughs> glory is that much higher. It's that much better. And, and I say this because some of you, you've been in the cave for a long time. You've gone deeper than you ever thought you would. And when you thought it was going to be a turn out, it's a turn down. And the enemy hits you with discouragement or doubt, and you wonder where God is. Paul knows, by the way, what this is like. He went through a long, deep cave in life. But he says, here's what I hold on to. I don't hold on to the fact that I'm gonna discover all the good that God was doing. I may or I may not. I don't hold on to the fact, oh, it's gonna get better right around the bend. It may or it may not. I'm not writing the story. He says, I hold on to the fact I'm a chapter in an epic. And God's writing a big story. And he's promised me that the end of the story is so much better than any chapter I can live here. And no matter how bad it gets here, it's that much better there. And I hold on to that by faith. And he calls each one of us, in conclusion, to hope. Paul literally looks at it and says, you've got to choose hope. Trusting what God is doing is even when you can't see why he's doing it. You choose hope even though you can't see it. You choose hope. Look at these verses. We, we skipped over them, but they're right in the center of this passage. I love these verses. It says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He says, even in the midst of this grown-worthy world, even when I don't understand what he's doing, I believe he's doing it, and God's called me to be a person of hope. And I hold on to hope. And I'm telling you today, I don't care how deep you're going, choose hope. And you may say, Tim, I, I can't choose hope because I can't see it. And Paul says, of course you can't see it. If you could see it, it's not hope anymore. One day, guys, we're not going to need hope. We're going to see him face to face. But this day, he's called us to be the people of hope. And it's not a hope that's this wishful thinking hope. Notice what he says. In this hope, we were saved. We have hope because of what Christ did. 
Guys, you know who's the hero of this big story? It's Jesus. He's the hero of our epic. And because of what he did, because of what he accomplished, because of what he overcame, we have hope. The fact that Jesus went to the deepest depth of dying on the cross and all the sins of humanity were placed on. The fact Jesus was buried in the grave, but the fact that Jesus rose again, he came back, is the basis of our hope. Our hope for the future is based on what our God has done in the real history of our past. And it gives us hope. You know, back in the Middle Ages, in the capitals of Europe, every nation was longing to be able to send a ship to India and back. If they could go to India, they knew the riches that were there, the trade that was there, it, it would such a benefit. The problem was nobody could make it around the Horn of Africa. And every ship that went there was destroyed. In fact, the Cape at the, at the point, they called it the Cape of Storms. Until an explorer named Vasco da Gama sailed around it. And he went to India and he came back. You know, they renamed the Cape of Storms. You know what it's called today? The Cape of Good Hope. Because somebody went <laughs> and they came back again. Guys, there is hope for every believer no matter how deep the cave is. Because one, our spirit actually is with us. And in the groanings of our soul, he groans too and turns them into prayer. And two, our hope is based on a savior who went to the deepest place and he rose again. And instead of this life being the place of storms, for the Christian, no matter what we face, it's the place of good hope because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, I pray specifically, there, there are people in this room, they're in the cave, they're in the dark place. They're in a season that they didn't plan on and it's gone longer than they ever expected. Lord, I, I pray that you'd give them hope today and not a hope that's built on wishful thinking or motivation, but a hope that's built on Jesus. That Jesus has been there and overcome. Would you give them a hope today that's based on the fact that the Spirit is with them in this and feels everything they feel and even takes it and turns that into prayers? Would they know that today? And for each one of us by faith, would we believe that one day we don't have to just hold on to hope, it will be sight because we will see our Savior face to face. Lord, I pray until this, that day, would you give us hearts to believe the truth of your word, faith to hold on to it with all that we have, and hope that is built on Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. 
To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.